Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. This episode is part of a special series about the Backaloo Trail region of Newfoundland and Labrador. Join us as we explore the hidden gems of the Backaloo Trail, from stories of phantom ship sightings to local art and history. I'm your host, Natalie Dignam. In today's episode, I'm joined by Nancy Brace of the Greens Harbor Heritage Society. Nancy is a Greens Harbor native who returned to Newfoundland in 2007. In 2009, she learned that the Orange Lodge in her community was for sale and felt compelled to preserve one of the town's oldest historic buildings. The Loyal Orange Lodge, also known as the Orange Order, is a Protestant fraternal organization. The Orange Lodge was established in Northern Ireland in 1795 in support of the Protestant monarchy in Britain. In Newfoundland, the lodge serves many functions. It is a fraternal organization and also active in the community. One of the tenets of the lodge is to encourage its members to do good works in their community without seeking recognition. The Greens Harbor Orange Lodge is now amalgamated with nearby communities, but Nancy and the Greens Harbor Heritage Society are looking to adapt the historic lodge building as a multi-use center for the community. In this interview, Nancy shares stories about the lodge, its impact in Greens Harbor heritage, and the new life being brought to the building through restoration. I thought we could start off, um, you could give a little background about yourself and how you got into kind of like the heritage work in Greens Harbor. So I moved back to Newfoundland in 2007 and had absolutely zero intentions of forming a heritage society. But in 2000 and early 2009, I believe it was, I was informed that the Orange Lodge building um, was going to be sold. The Orange Lodge is, I think, the only public building of any heritage significance, architecturally or otherwise, left in the community. They've all been torn down, the schoolhouses, churches, so on. So I was insistent. No, actually, the Anglican Church is still here. The Anglican Church is still here, but it's been closed and... uh, and it's in grave danger, actually. Uh, but that's how I ended up starting the Heritage Group, was simply because we wanted to save this building. And I found a few like-minded people, and so that's what we've done. Would you say that uh, like preserving buildings and architecture is kind of a, a new movement here in Newfoundland, and that uh, just tearing down old buildings and communities is... Uh, just like a a more common way to just deal with some of the architecture here? In the 70s, when I was a teenager, there was a, a fairly strong movement um, afoot, but it was mainly in St. John's. And when you came out around the Bay, it was, um, especially in the 70s, it was a real sign of progress that as a community you were moving forward and growing. It was progress, you know? Um, to get rid of the old and the what we what we would call now beautiful, um, they just wanted them gone and to put up the more modern looking buildings. As and it was progress. It meant that you were not old fashioned. You were growing and moving forward. And um, unfortunately, a lot of beautiful old houses and public buildings succumbed to the quote unquote progress of the seventies. And then through the, I can't really say the 80s, because I, I, there was a lot of 
a lot of two small windows, one door, large window bungalows uh, <laughs> built in rural Newfoundland in the 70s. The 80s kind of escaped me, but I think in the 90s was when the larger, fancier houses that you see now started springing up when young people were getting married and settling in the communities. But you had a few of those people tended to lean towards some sort of restoration, but more about the public buildings, more so than private houses. I think it's only been in the last probably 10 years that there's a move toward the rustic charm of Newfoundland architecture. I don't think it was good enough before that. And now people are, even in new houses, are adding in the traditional colors or, you know, the wainscoting or the, you know, like they're, they're trying to add into new places something that gives it a character of old. Could you describe what the Orange Lodge looks like? So uh, our Orange Lodge um, was built at a time when there were a number of Orange Lodges being built in rural Newfoundland. And they all pretty much had the same plan. It's a wide open hall with an arched ceiling. Uh, not vaulted, but, but an arch. So almost like a tunnel. And it has, in our case, eight, four down either side, I believe it is, arched windows on the sides with shutters and a balcony above the porch. When you step into the porch, it's fairly low ceiling, but above it is the balcony where the uh, brass band sat. In our case, there was an added on kitchen and like dining hall area uh, built out from the back. I was hoping you could uh, explain a little bit about what the Orange Lodge did here in Newfoundland and kind of how they functioned in the community. I grew up in a home where, you know, my grandfather and my father were Orangemen. I can't tell you a whole lot about it because it was so secretive. You know, I can remember my dad, if an Orangeman passed away, my dad was charged with writing the note. I have no idea what was written on it. Uh, writing the note and putting it, sealing it in a tin can and putting in the coffin with um, the deceased orangeman. Uh, there were a lot of things that were, you know, very secretive, their rights, their passages, things that they had to do. Having said that, um, they did a lot of good work within the community that nobody ever knew about because that was part of their... Um, I don't know if you say mantra, but that was part of their, their principles or um, their mission was to do good work without seeking um, praise for it. So there were lots of, um, you know, times where uh, widows with children had no money. Um, winter was coming. There was no wood. And as a group, they would go gather the wood, cut it, and, you know, in the wee hours of the morning, uh, put it in place in their yard, and nobody knew where it came from. And I only know about it because an orangeman now told me about it. (laughs) But nobody ever, ever knew where these good deeds came from. And there were people in the community, too, that wanted to go to university, um, 
didn't have the family didn't have the money and the orangemen whether it was through connections or fundraising I, I don't really know how they did it but they helped put the person through university so they did a lot of things that people just didn't know about yeah and I also you kind of talked about how that you know the the orangemen as an organization today has really lost so many members I mean that's kind of the reason why the building became vacant. So maybe talk about that amalgamation and uh, how that yeah. connects. One of the issues with the demise uh, in rural Newfoundland of the Orange Lodge, um, what is the fact, well, there's several things. Uh, one was that nobody, because their belief system was you do good deeds and expect nothing in return, no praise. Nobody necessarily knew that they were doing good deeds. So, you know, like they weren't um, promoting themselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they did these things, and uh, what could have been a reason for somebody to join them, um, they didn't know. They didn't know that reason existed. Um, but also in the say by the end of the late seventies early 80s um you know people weren't going to church like they used to do and the orangemen even though they were a fraternal association outside of the church it was still very much religiously based in the protestant faith so um if you're not going to church and you're not sort of following the the way of life, let's say, of going to church and having those certain beliefs, then you probably weren't going to make the next step to become a young Breton when you were a teenager and then follow on up through the stages because it was all very much based in the religious beliefs. Um, so you didn't have that continuum that they'd had for generations. And, you know, there was other stuff on the go. Like kids kids weren't interested in any of that stuff. So the, the members were continuously getting older, but there was nobody coming up behind them. And of course, by 2000 and probably six or seven, um, you know, they were down to a half dozen members here in this harbor where there used to be 150 members and, um, and no, no interest in anybody joining. So therefore it just, exterminates itself so um what happens is uh if you're if you don't have enough members to have your charter um you then amalgamate into another stronger uh, lodge so they amalgamated into the spaniards bay lodge uh prior to selling the um one here and then what happens is the spaniards bay lodge takes possession of the real estate so while the, the lodge over there had been there forever and ever and ever, uh, and we all saw it as a community building, it actually belonged to the Grand Orange Lodge of Canada. So um, the Spaniards Bay Lodge, because they were the owners of it now through amalgamation, that's who we bought the lodge from. You have also kind of mentioned that uh, it was regarded as a community building because even though like a lot of the practices of the Orange Lodge were a bit secretive and you don't know a lot about that. The building itself began to be used for all sorts of things in the community. So maybe you could talk yeah, a little about so, that. 
for many years, the Orange Lodge was used, this is a long time ago, uh, the Orange Lodge was used as the courthouse uh, for the area. And um, it was eventually used for weddings. People could, you know, rent the building to have their weddings. And um, by the time, oh, I don't know, let's say the 80s rolled around, um, you know, uh, you had girl guides and brownies and Boy Scouts and 4-H clubs and that sort of thing going on. And they used the building as their meeting place. It became, it wasn't a community center because it still was the Orange Lodge, but it was used in that way. Um, and, you know, baby showers and that sort of thing. And um, then there was at least once one summer where a group of girls in the community got a grant and for summer employment and they had a daycare and they worked out of the Orange Lodge. So it's been used for a whole number of things. Um, eventually they had dances over there because in the early days they weren't allowed to have dances uh, because that was not part of the belief system. You didn't drink and you didn't dance and you didn't, you know, it's very much in the Methodist uh, belief system. But eventually, you know, you had dances and weddings and things there. And, you know, it was it was a place that um, a lot of people in the community, you know, have a, a lot of people in the community have a lot of memories that have nothing to do with the Orangemen, um, whether it be a wedding or whatever. It's it was a community building. Yeah, and um, you had mentioned bands playing there? Yeah, yeah. Um, not so much bands playing there. I mean, bands played there because well, I don't know who they were. Uh, not so much bands playing there as people who became musicians as their livelihood learned to play their musical instruments through being members of the Young Bretons or the Orangemen. Mm -hmm. So they played in the brass bands and so on there and that was their musical start and then they grew up and became musicians like glenn simmons of a wonderful grand band and fables the fables fame um he that's where he started with music mm -hmm. yeah because the brass band is really like it's part of the i guess orange lodge culture you could yeah. say so you guys are working on restoring the Orange Lodge, and one of the really cool things that you've done is have people, uh, if they donate, they can write on a, a shingle on the lodge. Yeah. yeah. And you've gotten so many stories from that, which I think is amazing. Yeah. So, um, you know, over the course of the years, we have tried so many different things to raise money for this um, restoration. Um, and we had an idea that kind of came about by accident, actually. Um, do you want me to tell you the whole story of how this idea came up? Yeah, you can tell me the story. Okay. So, uh, Andrew Pretty from Dildo, um, had called me. I didn't know him. He had called me and asked if, um we would be interested in having him come voluntarily come and help us with this restoration. And I'm like, Oh my God, yes, <laughs> please. Um, 
so because we were good at getting the money together, but like, you know, we couldn't afford to pay somebody to do the work, you know? So, uh, he came down and, um, we started doing work and we were reshingling it with the cedar shingles the same way it had been done originally. Andrew and I started and we stripped all those shingles and siding and whatever off the front of the building and he and a couple of guys had installed the big round window in the in the eve called star of the east window got that in and and then andrew started i was helping him shingle the front and we were up probably say almost five feet and it was lunch break we went we went for lunch and I got back a little before him, and I'm sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting, and I'm thinking, well, it's not rocket science. I'm sure I could manage to do a few while I'm waiting. So I put on the first couple, and I thought, yeah, 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 I'm pretty good at like, because we already had the chalk line drawn, so I'm pretty good at this. Okay. So I did a whole line about five feet up. I had it done by the time he came back, and... I signed on the very top of the shingle, Nancy Brace uh, installed this row of shingles, Orangeman's Day, July 12th, 2018. And it was kind of a little bit of a joke when I did it. And from that, as we were talking about it, I was like, you know what? We could do this and have people write on the back of the shingles whatever they want. And we could sell the shingles for $5 each, and they tell a story, draw a picture, whatever they want to do. And we will now, this this um, summer, we will be installing the two sidewalls and the new windows. And that particular wall will be a, like a time capsule, so that years and years and years from now, if somebody decides they need to replace the shingles, when they pull those off, there'll be all these stories and pictures and family trees and dates and all this information of all of these people from this community, whether they live here now or not, but that have some connection to here or the building. So it's really, really cool. Like, you know, one is, we had the very first wedding in this building in, you know, 1958 or, or we had the last wedding in this building, in, you know? Um, and, and yeah, just fun, funny stories about, you know, their memories of things in that building and that sort of thing. I think it was a very, a very cool way to raise money for, we raised enough money that we paid for every single shingle that we used on the building. And it just goes to show, I think, like, I think what you're probably always working towards, just to show that building and the architecture might be beautiful, but they're also important for so many reasons in communities. Like, there is, there's so many stories, and that's why we save the architecture. Absolutely. For the stories and the history. When I look out my dining room window across the harbor, I can see that lodge, and it has been there my entire life. I cannot imagine looking out the window and not having that building just right there in my sights. It's it's just it's just part of the community. I was made fun of a number of years ago when I because I get very emotional talking about this and I said, 
I just don't understand why it's taken so lightly to tear down an old building in a rural community here in Newfoundland. If you went to London and suggested to somebody that Westminster Abbey is inefficiently heated, you know, taking up prime real estate in the middle of London, it's time for this old building to come down. <laughs> like, that would be sacrilege, you know? And even though we don't have a Westminster Abbey, we have our version of that. And it's the buildings that hold our stories. And we just so nonchalantly say, well, that building's done now. You know, just get rid of it. And I find that very disturbing. I, I, I find it very sad. And I think that communities lose their souls when they lose their own public buildings. I was hoping um, you could also tell the story that you told me about the 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 fray in 1912 and talk a little bit about because I think not everyone listening to the podcast is going to be super familiar with the history of Catholicism and Protestantism in Newfoundland but it did kind yeah. of cause a lot of a lot of conflicts but I think this is a great story because it also shows that there, the were, there was both conflict but then the lines were a bit blurry in St. John's, it was definitely, you know, a, a division between Catholic and Protestant and people mixing together because it was all in one area. But in rural Newfoundland, you had whole swaths of communities that were all Protestant and then another swath somewhere else that was all Catholic and never the twain shall meet sort of thing. This is kind of just a fun, a fun story. So the Orangemen have their... The Orangeman's Day is um, July 12th, and um, they always have these big marches and, uh, and uh, big parades. Um, now, in more recent history, you know, in Donegal, Ireland, there was there was conflict because of a an Orangeman's parade um, that was protested by the Catholic part of the community. So it's still ongoing, right? But um, in this case, um, Harbor Grace was, um, I guess, predominantly, if not all, Catholic town. And um, the Orangemen of the whole area were having their big Orangemen's Day parade. And they had a whole host of people from this over this way in Trinity Bay march over to to take part in the, in the parade. And... Um, as they were going by this one house, um, Stevie Cram, who used to be the owner of EJ Cram's here in Greens Harbor, um, Stevie Cram was walking, and he was sort of more on the tail end of the parade, or of the march, and he was stopped by this fence um, with a husband and wife that he knew who happened to be Catholic. So he was chatting with them, and they said, well, why don't you come in and, and have some dinner? Like, you know, you're going to get hungry. You might as well come in and eat. And he said, no, 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 i got to keep going, you know, with everybody. And they said, listen, they're going to be a while. Come in, have some dinner. You can tag on to the end then and, and go on. So they convinced them anyway to go into their home, sit down and have some dinner, and then join on. So that's what he did. But little did he know that while he was having dinner, 
the conflict called the fray had happened already. And a man had lost his life. But he came out from having dinner with his Catholic friends, joined onto the parade and continued on the march. Um, at the beginning of the parade, um, the Catholic people of Harbor Grace had come out to stop the Orangemen from parading through and um, shots were fired and somebody was killed. So he, he missed this historic Protestant Catholic conflict because he was having dinner at his Catholic friend's house. <laughs> That's such a good story. And um, so that happened in 1912. So quite a while ago. But then um, you also were telling me about the, was it the beams in the Orange Lodge? Yeah. yeah. So uh, on a more local level, uh, pretty much from Blaketown down to Heart's Delight, it's all Protestant or traditionally had been. Uh, but there was one Catholic family in Hopal called the Dunn family. And um, at that time, there was no road going through like there is now. There was the road connecting Hopal and Greens Harbor. Uh, and it's now called the Old Hopal Road. Um, and it just sort of cut over the crest of the hill between the two communities. The original Orange Lodge had been up on that road and had there had been a fire and it had burned. So when they were deciding about building a new Orange Lodge, the land that it's on there now was donated by the person who owned it. His house was next door. And it was because it's right across the water from the salt water and a pond. And that way, if there was a fire, they'd have access to uh, water. So they were gathered there on this land trying to figure out, you know, they have the plans and it's a, it's a pretty steep pitch roof. Like it's a, it's a high roof. And um, they were, you know, figuring it all out and how much they would have to cut and all that sort of stuff. And this Mr. Dunn came down from Hope Hall and was there chatting with them. They all knew each other. And um, he said, boys, you're going to need some long sticks to put the the support beams for that roof. Like, that's a, that's a high. So I think I got some up on my land. So he went to his land and he cut, as he would say, the sticks. He cut the sticks. Uh, that became the support beams for the roof of the Orange Lodge. So the Catholic beams <laughs> are what hold up the roof of the Protestant Orange Lodge. <laughs> Do you want to talk a little bit about what the, like, the future of the lodge? So um, when we started the lodge, we had originally thought we would just do a little museum, you know. And then we very quickly realized that a little museum was not going to raise enough money to support itself. So um, we had to sort of rejig how we were thinking about things. And we came up with a plan. And that's probably what's taking us so long. But anyway, we came up with a plan that it would be an arts, arts recreation, culture, and heritage center the acronym being ARCH, A-R-C-H. And we chose that acronym because, for several reasons, the symbol of the Orange Lodge is the Royal Arch. 
And that's why the windows, the doors, and the ceiling are arched. So we're paying homage to the traditions of the Orange Lodge. And then if you were just a guy off the street, it would make sense to you because the windows, the doors, and the ceilings are arched. So, you know, if you knew nothing else about the place, that would make sense. And then the acronym standing for Arts, Culture, Heritage, and Recreation, uh, Arts, Recreation, Culture, and Heritage, um, spells out ARCH. Um, and that way we would be able to use it multi-use. So it could be a performance center. We could have yoga classes there. We could teach, you know, cast net knitting. Any number of things could happen in that hall. And um, we could use it as a, um, a venue for weddings and that sort of thing, too. Are there any other things about the lodge that you wanted to talk about? I would, I would like to say that if people wanted to help us raise money for to speed the thing up, <laughs> to think of us as a place to help raise money for, that would be really, truly appreciated. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.